I love this uh, passage of scripture that um, Gail read for us this morning. Um, I'm, I've been attempted to memorize it, um, the entire chapter, and I've done pretty good, pretty well down to the, through verse 8, where Gail read this morning, because that seems to me kind of like it flows, but when you get to the second half, I kind of, Paul's kind of does this, and he says this, and he, to me, kind of, and so I, I just haven't gotten that flow yet. But I'm working on it. But to me, um, this is all about how the Christian life should be lived in in Romans chapter 12. And what we're going to be emphasizing in the next few weeks is what God has done to gift us as his people. He has given us spiritual gifts. Now, um, I know there's a lot of other ways God has gifted us. He, he He blesses us in many, many ways. Amen? I'm, and, and some of those are, are spiritual, eternal blessings. Some of those are just temporal blessings. Just, you know, you've heard the phrase, thank God for small favors and just the things we see He does in our lives every day that we enjoy and take joy in. Um, like uh, Dean and I went fishing Friday and God let us catch some of His fish and I really enjoy doing that. And... uh Dave Wheelock took, took me to a football game last night, and I enjoy watching football. And it wasn't a great experience for the Buffs, but hey, we still enjoyed watching the game. And so God blesses us in, in many, many ways. But He has given us gifts to use for the sake of the kingdom. Spiritual gifts, gifts that we receive when we place our faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. And guess what? And I'll emphasize this again. Every single one of us have one or more gifts that God has given us for use in the kingdom. And all the people said, okay, we believe it. What do I want to emphasize this morning, and I'm not going to talk so much about the gifts as what we have to do to prepare ourselves to use those gifts that God has given us. Because Paul addresses that very clearly in the first few verses of this passage that Gail shared with us this morning. So, have you ever given thought to the preparation process Olympic athletes go through in order to compete in the games. Have you ever thought about that? Many athletes, coaches, and trainers say it takes up to eight years of training before one's uh, first, they're on their first Olympic team. There's a lot involved. While some Olympic athletes have side careers or day jobs, training to compete in the Olympics is a full-time job in and of itself. Many athletes train three times a day or more, six days a week or more. And when they're not training, they're often resting and eating in preparation to train some more. While the average Joe plans his training schedule out up to a few months in advance, Olympians have to think farther ahead. Olympic athletes usually set annual goals and may develop a schedule for the entire four years leading up to the Games. If you want to train like an Olympian, you'd, be better, redder, you'd better be ready to sleep. Athletes tend to need up to 10 hours of sleep each night, as well as a half hour to 90 minute nap each day. 
That's because the body rebuilds tissue during sleep, allowing muscles to grow. Olympic athletes need to pile on the calories in order to fuel and recover from workouts. On a day of particularly intense training, it wouldn't be unheard of for an athlete to consume up to and maybe even more than 5,000 calories. It wouldn't look good on most of us. (laughs) Preparing to compete in the Olympics basically consumes the athlete's life. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 and 25. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. I would even say train in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it. Now we're talking about a different kind of training here, aren't we? We do it. We train to get a crown that will last forever. All the preparation that Olympians go through is in hopes of winning a medal that will not last. But as Paul emphasizes, we are in a preparation process as well. And it involves discipline and commitments that are intended to ultimately result in receiving a reward, a crown that will last forever. So this morning as as we begin to engage this scripture... We need to understand that to serve Jesus effectively, there's a preparation process that we must all go through. And this requires some basic commitments. And here's what they are. First of all, an unreserved commitment to God. Paul opens this, and I appreciate the emphasis that Gail has put on the word therefore. That's how Paul opens this. Therefore... In view of God's mercy. What's the therefore, therefore? Well, when we come to chapter 12 of Romans, Paul is making a shift from doctrine to practice. Not unlike the pattern he follows in the book of Ephesians and Colossians when he establishes doctrine in the first part of the book and then moves to application in the second half. Theology is never meant to be cold and lifeless. It it must always have a practical application. It's as if Paul were saying, based on everything I've just said, this is what you now need to do to put it into practice. There are at least four therefores in the book of Romans. Romans 3.20 is the therefore of condemnation. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become become conscious of sin. And then in Romans 5.1 is the therefore of justification. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Romans 8, 1 is a therefore of assurance. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then Romans 12, 1 is the therefore of surrender. Paul is saying that even though we are guilty of sin and deserve to die, we have been declared righteous through Jesus Christ and will not face condemnation. Based upon the entire argument of chapters 1 through 11, we should fully surrender our lives to Jesus Christ. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Complete surrender to Him. And he says, in view of God's mercy. Why didn't he say in view of God's grace? That's the plea he makes in view of God's mercy. The original word used here for mercy is actually plural and refers to the multitude of God's mercies. He is not merciful just once, but again and again and again. Aren't you glad? (laughs) He is consistently and constantly full of of mercy. John Calvin once said that we will never worship with a sincere heart or serve God with unbridled zeal until we properly understand how much we are indebted to God's mercy. God has demonstrated so much mercy to us that we can't help but respond by fully surrendering our lives to Him. And it It is interesting to me that Paul doesn't say in light of God's grace, but instead focuses on mercy. Why is that? Well, God's grace is demonstrated when we get what we don't deserve. And by the way, we're graced over and over again, aren't we? We get what we don't deserve. Whereas His mercy is what keeps us from getting what we do deserve. What do we deserve? Micah 7, 18. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. Lamentations 3.22. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. Aren't you thankful for that? Who? I don't know where I'd be if God had not shown me mercy over and over again. So, in view of God's mercy, here's what we to do and we are to do. And there are three ways to express our commitment. Number one, we offer our bodies. Now, what Paul says here is, would have been a strange concept for the Jews to get a hold of. We're, we are urged in view of the many mercies of God to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. And this word offer is a technical term that was used to describe the bringing and presenting of an animal sacrifice on the altar. Now, we know that That wasn't, well, it was living when it came, but the sacrifice ultimately was, it died. 
To offer means to present once and for all. In the Old Testament, worship included sacrifice. A live animal was brought to the priest and the owner would lay hands on the beast symbolically to say, this animal takes my place. The animal was killed and the blood was sprinkled upon the altar. So the idea of a living sacrifice must have seemed strange to the Jews of that day. Sacrifices, their mind, all died. They all died. This was something they'd not heard before, except perhaps in the case of Abraham offering Isaac. Remembering God said, I will provide the sacrifice, which was fulfilled thousands of years later, actually, in Jesus Christ. See, they were used to offering dead sacrifices that died. Once a sacrifice was offered to God, you could not take it back. When we are called to present our bodies to the Lord, we are exhorted to offer our total being to Him. He wants us to be completely committed to Him. But as someone has said, the problem with living sacrifices is that they keep crawling off the altar. They keep crawling off the altar, a living sacrifice. A young boy came to church one cold winter day to get out of the blowing snow. He'd been trying to sell newspapers, but not a single customer had passed by because of the weather. He slipped into the back of of a church, just hoping to get warm and maybe catch up on a little sleep. Though though the Sunday crowd was slim, the boy really paid attention to the sermon. It, It caught his attention, and he was greatly moved by it. And when the pastor was done, they received the offering. And the ushers went down row by row, and when the offering plate came to the boy, he had nothing in the, his pockets to offer. He stared at it a while, and then he put the plate on the floor. And then he did something very strange and beautiful. He stood up and stepped right into the offering plate. By then, all the people had turned around and were staring at the boy. And when he looked up, he had big tears running down his face. And he said, Pastor, I don't have any money because I haven't sold any newspapers today. But if Jesus gave his life for me, I will gladly give my life to him. A living sacrifice. And Paul says, to do this is our spiritual act of worship. We offer ourselves as living sacrifices. So what's Paul, Paul saying here? He's saying the way we live our lives should be our worship to God. Boy, I hope we're doing that successfully. The way we live our lives should be worship. Yesterday morning in our, in our prayer time, Dean pointed out the fact that we have a responsibility in some aspects for the, na- uh, the reputation of God's name. We bear God's name. We are God's people. We are Christ followers. We are Christians. And folks, when we live in ways out in the world that does harm to the, that brings shame or question to the name of Jesus, 
Are we truly living as sacrifices in the way God has called us to? To be a living sacrifice is to honor God, bring praise and worship to Him by the way we live our lives. Boy, that's pressure, Pastor. It is pressure. That's why He gave us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit helps us live godly, holy lives that bring honor and glory to the name of the God we serve. So we offer our bodies. We also offer our minds. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. So we offer our mind. The, and the word... Paul uses here, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, is the world, is the word that we get our English word scheme from. The word scheme. It's sometimes translated in, in some versions as do not be fashioned to the pattern of this world. Paul is urging us to stop being pushed into the fashion of this world. Don't fit into the world's scheme. Do you see what he's saying here? Sometimes we are, we are so conformed to the world that there's little, or not, or little noticeable difference between Christians and non-Christians. Don't you think there's something about our lives that should stand out as different? But but we are urged to, be, to conform in our world. Aren't we? Conform. Believe the way we believe. View things the way we view things. Accept things that we accept. Isn't that the pressure that we exerted upon us all the time? And don't say anything about certain things. Like Jesus and sin. Don't talk about that stuff. So there's this pressure in our world to conform to the world's way of thinking, to the world's way of viewing things. And Paul says, do not be conformed to that. Don't, don't buy into the world's fashion. Don't buy into the world's scheme. And yet sometimes those who would say they're followers of Jesus Christ have been so conformed that you cannot tell the difference between someone who claims Christ and Someone who does not. See, a conformist is afraid to be different and feels the need to be like everyone else. A Christian is not supposed to be a chameleon that conforms to whatever surroundings they find themselves in. The only conforming we are to do is to the likeness of Jesus Christ. We are to conform to the likeness of Jesus Christ. And there is incredible pressure in our world to conform. There are any number of things we've, that have become morally acceptable in our country, and yet are con contrary to God's Word. And, and some of those things even have the force of law behind them now. You know what I'm talking about. And folks, we're so supposed to buy into that and say, no problem. If a judge says it's okay... If a law says it's okay, it must be okay. 
we are encouraged, pressured, and sometimes even coerced to buy in to the world's way of thinking and viewing things. And Paul says, don't give in. Do not be conformed. Unfortunately, we're so, so bombarded by this kind of thinking that some of us have internalized the world's values and fashions so much that we don't even recognize that that's what we're doing anymore, that we're internalizing things. I don't know who I was talking to. You know, I have so many conversations in a week's time. It's like, who was I talking to? But it's, it's a process of being... I mean, it's a plan, folks. There's, it's something intentional. It's the enemy of our souls. He has a plan. And what he wants to, us to do is develop this kind of immunity, this kind of insensitivity to sin in our world. And so what happens is we're so bombarded with it for so long that no, it bo- after a while it doesn't bother us anymore. You know what I'm talking about? It's the person who lives next to the garbage dump and can't smell the foul odor anymore because they've lived there so long. It's the person who lives in the flight path of the international airport and doesn't notice when the jets are landing anymore because they've just gotten so used to the sound. Do you know what I'm talking about? And that's what's happening in the world we live in. And we're so bombarded with this stuff, folks, it's intentional. It it just... Our sensitivity to these things is is kind of lowered and pretty soon we're kind of, well, maybe that's not so bad after all. And, you know, if, if you spend enough time conforming to the world, you become so accustomed to darkness that you think it's normal. So don't be conformed. And then Paul goes on to say, be transformed. Be transformed. And that refers to an interchange. Not an interchange, an interchange. We get the word metamorphosis from the Greek word Paul uses here. A metamorphosis is not something we can do on our own. If we present ourselves as living sacrifices and begin to consistently invest in the things of God, worship, prayer, and the Word, the Holy Spirit, then does that transformational work in us. Farmers in Zensuji, Japan, are preparing full-grown watermelons for shipment. Only these are no ordinary watermelons. They're square. Ever seen a square watermelon? They were, pl- they were placed in tempered glass cubes while they were still growing so that the ultimate shape when they were harvested would be square. Why would anyone want a square watermelon? Well, they're much easier to store in the refrigerator. They're not that odd, long, weird shape. It's amusing to think how a naturally round watermelon can become square because of the shape of the container in which it's grown. And this reminds me of the forces in the world that exert their influence on us and attempt to shape us. That's why we are told not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. 
And the idea is rather simple. We allow the transforming Word of God through the Holy Spirit to work within us and produce outward results instead of permitting external pressures to shape us. We're shaped by what's in here, not what's out here. Paul in Colossians 3 chapter... uh, Excuse me, Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14 says it this way. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Boy, we're already talking countercultural here, aren't we? Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. I used to use this as a a wedding sermon, and I talked about the garments that the bride and groom were wearing. And you know, we don't have one-piece garments anymore. You know, this the sleeves sewed on, and the you know, and I don't know anything about sewing things, but I know this is made of different pieces, and the different pieces are compassion, forgiveness, those things that I just read to you. And the thread that binds them all together and makes them work is love. That's the kind of life God wants us to live. That's what He wants seen in our lives. And that only happens as we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. See, and and folks, listen, the evidence of these things, like I just shared with you from Colossians, these things are not instantaneous. It's a result of the transformational process God does in our lives and our growth in the likeness of Jesus Christ. When we put on Christ, our lives are transformed into His likeness. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed, are being transformed, it's a process, folks, are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is His Spirit. And that fits in with our theology, our Wesleyan theology that says... God can do a work of total commitment, of entire cleansing of sin in our lives. That happens as we make a a commitment in a moment. But then we talk about growth in grace. That transformational process that God is working in our lives so we look more and more and more and more like the character of Jesus Christ as we grow. Offer your will. That's the next thing we do. There's not really much profit in testing and approving God's will unless you're willing to do His will when you know what it is. Okay? Told we we are be conformed no longer to the past world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds, and we'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. But it won't do us much good to test and approve God's will unless we're willing to do His will when we know what it is. He does not dominate our wills, but He allows us to choose 
His will. Wow! Think of that. When God created us, He did not want robots. What a huge risk for God to take knowing that we could choose to reject Him. But that's exactly what He did. He gave us the will to choose, the ability to choose for Him or against us. He does not, against Him. He does not dominate our wills, but allows us to choose His will. But listen, folks, it, it, it's no use sitting around waiting to have the will of God revealed to us. Remember I talked about waiting is an active term. Oh God, show me your will. And I'm going to sit on the couch till I find out what it is. <laughs> no, it's no use sitting around waiting to have the will of God revealed to us. To test and approve, okay? These are active verbs. We learn His will by doing. When you wonder what God's will is for your life, the first place to start is by living out Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So until you offer Him your body, your mind, and your will, you won't understand His good, pleasing, and perfect will for your life. And folks, we have a tendency, don't we, when we're thinking of God's will, to focus on, oh, what, what am I supposed to do as an occupation? Or, where God do you want me to live? Or, you know, things like that. And it's not that God isn't interested in things like that, but His primary interest is in our transformation. His will that we be transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And I know we've all come to God, and I've done the same thing. I mean, when, when Longmont Church of the Nazarene said, um, would you consider being our pastor? I had to go to ask God about that. Okay, it's okay to ask those kind of questions. But ultimately, His will for our life has to do with us being transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And then all these other decisions feed into that. What do I do with my life? Where do I live? Where do you want me to serve? What church should I be a part of? And things like that. But ultimately, it's God's desire that we be transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's what the transformational process is all about. And I'm not done yet this morning. I have more to go. So I'm going to save that for next week. Okay? Because Paul goes on to say a few more things about, here's how you prepare yourself to use the gifts that God has given you. And we'll jump in at that point. I think that's a B or something on your outline. Am I right, B? Okay. So say, hang on to that so uh, Bernice doesn't have to print a bunch of new outlines, okay? Because we're conservative. We want to be wise stewards of the money that you spend here, and, and uh, we don't have to print off a bunch of new ones. Then we'll make up some additional stuff for next week. Whew. I'm hot. 
I was expending some major Olympic energy up here this morning. I think I'll go eat 5,000 calories when I'm done. (laughs) Uh, Thank you for being here this morning. Thank you for your attentiveness. Thank you for sharing together in our prayer time. Boy, we're in the thick of it, but there's victory on the other side. And um, if God be for us, who can be against us? Right? And uh, why not us? Why not us? Let's pray. Father, would you cement the things that you've spoken to each of our hearts about this morning? Maybe a little different for each one, but cement those things in our hearts and minds, I pray. Bring them, bring them to us at times. May we meditate on what we've heard you saying to us on this scripture that we shared together in this morning. And then, Father... Be obedient. Offer our bodies complete commitment. You don't take, you know, the Jews knew this. You don't take a sacrifice back off the altar. And and praise your name, you allow us to be living sacrifices. I'm certainly thankful for that. And then to be in that process of transformation that you've called us to as your people. Not buying into the, as Paul says, the vain philosophy of our world, the pressure that they put on us to conform to their way of thinking and living and viewing God if they even believe in a God at all. But Lord God, to allow the scripture to guide us, the scripture to show us who you are, the scripture to tell us how we should live, and then the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives to know how we apply that and live that out. So that we are truly representatives of Jesus Christ in the world where we live. To his glory and honor and praise. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, thank you for being here today. Grace and peace. God bless you as you go.